Welcome, everyone, to the Thursday edition of the Markets and Mortgages podcast. I'm your host, Tyler Crawley, and I guess we got to start with the big, much-anticipated consumer price index number that came out on Wednesday morning, and, well, it didn't disappoint. The expectations were 100% correct, 7%, 7% year-over-year price appreciation across the board, pretty much what everyone had said was going to be happening, which means this is the highest rate of inflation that we have seen in almost 40 years. So first, let's start month over month. Consumer price index was up 0.5%, which was a little bit lower than the prior month over month increase of 0.8%. But like I said, year over year, it still raised prices to 7%, the largest increase in year-over-year prices since June 1982. So it's been a while. It's Someone said the last time prices were this, were this high, ET was phoning home. Core CPI, of course, that's inflation, not including food and energy, was up 5.5% to end the year 2021. So let's talk about food prices. Food prices, well, they were... Like the overall inflation rate, we're somewhat down in December month over month, or I should say the had slowed, the growth rate had slowed 0.5% versus 0.8% that we saw in the prior month, but year over year up 6.3% and continuing to lead the growth in food prices, meat, poultry, fish, and eggs were up 12.5% year over year. That's a big jump. Anything double digits is going to be concerning. Uh, the That was followed by non-alcoholic beverages. We're up 5.2%. And fruit and vegetables, we're up 5% even. So if you're trying to eat healthy, so if you're trying to eat you know, your proteins, your meat, your poultry, your fish, you're trying to eat fruits and vegetables, uh, you're going to be paying more. So I guess like cotton candy, maybe that's not been up as much. <laughs> I didn't mention sugar products. But yeah, uh, meat, poultry, eggs, and fish continue to lead the way double digit. It was funny. I did see someone trying to claim that meat prices were down. They were they were down 1% for the month, <laughs> but they're still up double digits overall. Uh, food at restaurants was up 6%, which was slightly higher than the food that you bought take home, aka groceries up 5.6%. Now, the other major category that affects consumers, energy, energy prices actually saw a somewhat significant decline month over month, down 1.1%, which is great. You want to see that, especially in the winter months. Usually, energy prices go up because people are using more energy to heat their homes. But overall, energy prices were still up 29.3%, and gasoline prices are still up almost 50% at 49.6%. So, I mean, you look at that, you're looking at food prices up 6.3%, meats, you're looking at double digits, and energy and gasoline prices, I mean, you're talking, I mean, gasoline up 50%. That's where a lot of people's income goes. And so you can see why people are concerned and upset. And that's why that recent poll, I think it was uh, the AP poll, that had shown that you'd seen a doubling of people who were concerned about home finances, a.k.a. inflation. That number went from 12% last year at this time to now 20 
4%. I'm actually surprised that number is not higher when you're looking at this inflation rate. So what was really driving the increase? It continues to be cars, both used and new. Uh, used cars and trucks saw the biggest monthly jump. They were up 3.5% for a year-over-year increase of 37.3%. I mean, you're still looking at like an insane arbitrage opportunity when new car prices are only up 10.7% and used car prices are up 37.3%. That's like ripe for arbitrage. You go buy a new car and sure prices are up, but then you can then turn it around and sell it and you're maybe selling it for more than you bought it new. I mean, that's that's how insane things are right now with the automobile industry. Uh, new car prices were followed by tobacco products were up almost 10% at 9%. Apparel was up 5.8% and transportation services were up 4.2%. And I mean, when you're seeing a number like used cars and trucks up 37.3%, I mean, that's just gonna be a huge, I mean, that that's such a big increase. It is going to have an impact on the overall index, which a lot of people are saying, oh, well, if we just get used car prices down. And a lot of people have pointed out it's a really weird argument to make where it's like, well, if you just remove the big jump categories, it's actually not that bad. Well, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Anytime you do that, in any statistic, you take the biggest categories, the categories that are leading inflation and you remove them. Yeah, it's going to drop the overall number. But you can't do that. <laughs> That's not how math works. You can't just remove the big numbers and go, oh, actually, it's not that bad. But here's what's probably concerning for most economists. Shelter prices. We keep hearing about shelter prices and how a couple months ago, they weren't being reflected in the data. Well, this month, shelter prices were up 0.4% month over month, but up 4 0.1% year over year with home ownership seeing the biggest increase. For example, ownership was up 0.4% month over month, 3.8% year over year, rents up 0.4% the same, but only up year over year 3.3%. And Neil Irwin, who used to be at the Times, now is at Axios, noted on Twitter that both rents and, and owner equivalent rent, which is basically home ownership, uh, we're up 0.4% in December after a 0.5% increase the last two months. That remains a heck of a floor under core inflation. What he means by that is that shelter, I believe, is two-thirds of the overall index. And so when you're seeing 4% year-over-year growth, and it doesn't look like that's going to drop anytime soon with where housing prices are and and even what their projected appreciation is. Even if home prices slow, you're still going to see elevated prices. That's going to keep that overall index elevated. So even if everything else drops to zero, let's just imagine, right? Inflation overnight disappears except for shelter. Because that's two-thirds, 4% is going to keep that number elevated, probably even above the Fed baseline, which is still 2%, I believe. It would be close. And so that just goes to show you when you're seeing 4 to 5% inflation for homes, that means you've got a pretty strong floor that Irwin is talking about. So like I said, a lot of people are wondering when we're going to peak. Some are saying, hey, this could be the peak. Not a lot of people agree with that. <laughs> but I do think we're getting close to the peak 
But the question is that what happens after? Does it actually become transitory? Do prices then start decreasing? Do they remain elevated? Because even if we were to see, like I said, inflation disappear overnight, prices would still remain at their elevated levels, which would still be a problem for a lot of consumers unless they're seeing wage gains. And so that's the big question. 2021, not a good year for inflation. We had Powell testify the other day in front of the Senate and said, hey, yeah, we're going to start making some moves to kind of normalize things. But how long is that going to take? That's the big question moving forward. Now, speaking of things moving up, this is actually, I would argue, a positive total mortgage demand was up 1.4% week over week to start the year. Not a bad way to start the year. And they were led by purchase demand. Purchase index was up 2% for the week but it's still down 17% year over year. This according to the latest data from the Mortgage Bankers Association. The refi index was down slightly. And when I say slightly, I mean slightly. 0.1% is what it was down. Uh, but year over year, a little bit more substantial, 50%. And well, let's just say the reasoning, rates mortgage rates continue their climb. And of course, today we're going to be getting some data from Freddie Mac. That's kind of like the, the big data. The Mortgage Bankers Association is, is a good baseline, but the Freddie Mac numbers are the ones that get most reported. And so we're going to get those today at 10 a.m. But the Mortgage Bankers Association says that right now, the 30-year fix, the average contract interest rate jumped 19 basis points to 3.52%. That's three and a half, yes. That is 62 basis points higher than where we were a year ago. 15-year fixed uh, was up 13 basis points to 2.73%. That's a 34 basis point jump from the same time last year. Joel Kahn, the Mortgage Bankers Association Associate Vice President of Economic and Industry Forecasting, said rates are reaching the breaking point when it comes to refis, talk to anyone in mortgages and they will confirm that. He said, quote, mortgage rates increased significantly across all loan types last week as the Federal Reserve signaling of tighter policy ahead pushed U.S. Treasury yields higher. The 30-year fixed hit 3.52%, its highest level since March 2020. That's it. That's pre-pandemic levels. That's right when everything started to kind of going to hell. Rates at these levels are quickly closing the door on refinance opportunities for many borrowers. And yeah, I mean, if you look at the data, there are still millions of homeowners out there who would benefit from a refi. But I mean, let's face it, if you're someone who would benefit from refinancing at 3.52, why didn't you refi when it was 2.7? So if you're not paying attention when it's 2.7, you're definitely not paying attention when it's 3.5. Unless you have to do a cash out refi, something along those lines. And there's like a reason why you have to do that. Like you need the money out of your house. That's a different factor. And then you probably aren't going to care too much about the rate. But yeah, I mean, the refi boom, we'll get the data from Freddie Mac. But if it's at, you know, three and a half, two, then I think most people would argue the refi boom is is officially over. It's I know we've said that before. We said that, what, six, seven months ago. And then you saw rates drop again. But I would say that it might be safe to say that the refi boom of the pandemic might officially be coming to a close. Now, before we go, I did want to note there was a great piece 
by M. Nolan Gray over at The Atlantic, who said that the real estate market in the United States now resembles the car market in Cuba. Anytime you're comparing something to Cuba, it's not good. I know Michael Moore did a documentary in which he said, oh, look how great Cuba's healthcare system is. But I'll just say this. If you're comparing something to Cuba, it's probably not a good comparison. He said a stagnant supply of junkers is being forced into service long after its intended lifespan. So he's writing about this sort of fetishizing of what we've done with old homes where it's sort of this like, Oh, old homes are so great and we shouldn't tear them down. And it's like the bane of my existence are these historic societies. And I've talked about this before here on the podcast who try and save every building. That's more than like five years old trying. There was one, we talked about it here. I know we did on the podcast. I think it was like in Missouri. They were trying to save a mall, like a legit mall that was built in the seventies. And it's like a, horribly disgusting ugly building and they're like no we have to save it because it's it, it's in that design the the brutalist design that all those buildings where there's so many buildings we're fine we can get one get rid of one we'll be fine here but there's this sort of nostalgia that takes over and i get that nostalgia is a very powerful emotion but not when it's hurting other people and a lot of times when you're stopping new building you're hurting people now for memories and that really shouldn't happen if you want to be nostalgic that's fine but it shouldn't cost and be painful for people in the present and so how old are homes that's the big question so gray writes the median home nationwide is now 39 years old that is up 20 percent in the past decade alone in the northeastern states of New York and Massachusetts, the median is much higher, 63 and 59, respectively. 63, that's the median age. That's kind of an old home. Uh, so why is this happening? Well, you can thank local governments across the country. Between apartment bans, Nolan writes, strict density limits, or excuse me, I should say gray rights or M. Nolan gray rights, strict density limits, minimum parking requirements, taking an old home and turning it into apartment building or even two or three modern townhouses is in many cases illegal. And we talked yesterday about what California is doing to try and make this a little bit more accessible for developers to turn a old home into three new homes, which will be beneficial from an environmental perspective. Maybe that's how they sold it in California. Like, this is going to be for green energy. So Gray goes on to argue the development, while seemingly would be bad for the environment, like, oh no, you're going to tear down a home and build a new one? That's, that's unnecessary. Why are you doing that? Well, here's why it makes sense. From a green perspective, modern homes and apartment buildings are not only far better insulated, they have modern HVAC systems such that homes can be warmed and cooled without using nearly as much energy as their old counterparts. Now, Gray makes a great argument. We don't have time to get into all of it. It's a fascinating piece. Of course, you can find this link in my companion newsletter, which you can sign up for at marketsandmortgages.com. But it's great because he talks about why it makes sense, why it's, it's environmentally friendly. Sure, the initial carbon emissions from building that, that new house will be more but over probably just a few years, the benefit is going to outlast whatever that initial emission total was. And so it not only makes sense economically, 
It makes sense environmentally. It just makes sense across the board. And we got to stop this nostalgia that is just taking over and keeping these old houses around that shouldn't be there anymore. All right. Sell it to a developer. Let them redevelop it. Everybody wins. Everybody wins across the board. The person that sold the property, the person that's going to move into the new one, neighborhood, government, tax base. You have now three homes instead of one. Everyone benefits. All right. It's a win, 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 win across the board. All right. We got to go now. Like I said, don't forget to sign up for the companion morning newsletter at marketsandmortgages.com. So what's happening today? Well, yes, well, yesterday we got CPI. So today we're getting PPI, the producer price index. What are manufacturers, the people that are producing these goods, what are they paying? Well, we're going to find out. And predictions are not good. <laughs> it's, it's almost 10%. They're calling for 9.6. I've seen estimates as high as 10 so we'll see what the actual number is. We got initial jobless claims coming out at 8.30 as well. And then as I mentioned, Freddie Mac, the mortgage rates are coming out at 10 a.m. So a lot of good stuff to talk about for Friday's pod. You guys, though, enjoy your Thursday. And I'll see you back here Friday morning for another edition of Markets and Mortgages. And as always, do not wait to buy real estate. You buy real estate and wait. Wait.